0: All the way through September, early October, I had acquired the biggest put position or call position, the biggest option position that I had ever had in my young life. And going in to the market crash of 1987, the biggest on a percentage basis of any crash we've ever had, I sold them all the day before the crash. <laughs>
1: Hello, fellow risk takers and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by Stocks Academy, online course, how to start building your wealth, investing in the stock market. I wrote this course for those who want to go from feeling frustrated, intimidated, and overwhelmed by the stock market to becoming confident and in control of their financial future. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals to claim your discount now. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guest, Jim O'Shaughnessy. Jim, are you ready to rock?
0: I am ready to rock. Let's do it.
1: (laughs) So Jim is the chairman and co-chief investment officer of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. He is the author of four books on investing and his book, What Works on Wall Street is a Business Week and New York Times bestseller. Jim is the former chairman of the board of the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center and currently serves as the chairman of the Capital Campaign for CMS. Jim is married with three children and two grandchildren and lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. Jim, take a minute and fill in further tidbits about your life.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Well, so you've reminded me that I have to update my bio because I am now the proud grandfather of three grandchildren. My daughter just gave birth to a new granddaughter about six weeks ago, and I haven't seen her yet because she's in Berkeley and we're in Connecticut, and everyone's a little worried about travel with COVID. But I do get to FaceTime with her a lot, and we get pictures every day. So it's exciting. very, very exciting, and luckily, my other grandkids live about a mile and a half away from me, and I see them all the time. So we're trying to uh, induce our daughter and son-in-law to move back east. But <laughs> I don't think, don't think it's going to succeed. I think, I think you nailed it with what you said. So uh, other than okay. my happy uh, news, we can get going. Okay. One,
1: one of the things. I mean, we we talked a little bit before we turn on the recorder, but the. Uh, the book, what, Worked on, what Works on Wall Street, came into my life as an analyst and, and as I was trying to understand better about stock picking, portfolio construction. And I'm just wondering if you can tell the story of kind of how that book came to be and maybe just help the audience understand, you know, because at first you may have, you know, at first you may have questioned what you were doing, but then at some point you became confident that this is going to be a valuable book.
0: Yeah, so I had written my first book which was called Invest Like the Best, which showed the reader how they could basically clone their favorite portfolio manager by putting the stocks in his or her portfolio on a computer using a database like Compustat or the Value Line. I used the Value Line because it was much cheaper. And so as I'm writing that book, I'm like, you know, I got to go search the academic literature because this is kind of cool, but I've only got like five years of data. I'm sure there's got to be like some academic research going way, way back. Well, when I went, I did find some stuff, notably French and Fama, who, which most people are familiar with, but they really only did price to book. And so I kept searching, didn't find anything. And I kind of was very excited, came home, talked to my wife, and I'm like, I have an opportunity here and i think it's a huge opportunity and you know the only reason i have this opportunity is because i was born at the right time i was born in 1960 so this is back when i was in my early 40s but i was that connection of people who loved all that previous older research that younger people hadn't yet read but also understood and embraced computers and databases right so i got this nexus that as i said to you earlier you know if ben graham had had these computers i wouldn't have never had an opportunity he would have written the book yep but so i approached the folks at s p compustat which is the most comprehensive database of the u.s and now other country stocks available today they have monthly data going back to 1964 they have annual data going back to 1951, I believe. And then for this fourth edition of the book, we also incorporated the CRISP data from the University of Chicago. Which, that's the Center for Research and Security Pricing, mm. which goes all the way back to 1927. So I was very excited and no one else was. <laughs> 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 because you know my wife, who is wonderful and has always supported me and I, whom I love dearly, she would just kind of look at me and she'd say, "Wait a minute." Because she saw a mock-up of what I was going to do. Right. And she's like, "So, you're just going to like use a template and use the same template for every factor?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, because nobody has seen this stuff." She's like, "I just don't think anyone's going to buy it." <laughs> and which I was my
1: like, question, you know, when we first started, cuz like, yeah. I mean, sometimes when you create something, you just repeat it oh, it's boring and all that. But of course, that's the value of that book for me was that, okay, how does this one
0: compare to that one? Precisely. And what you can do is you, if you're only interested in like growth or momentum, there's a chapter on that, right? Yep. You don't have to read the whole book. Yep. If you're a value guy, there's a chapter on that. And so you don't have to read it from, pay, from cover to cover, right? You can dip in wherever you want. And it was kind of exactly what people were looking for, uh, especially mm. investment, right? Yep. And then and then we had some fun with uh, with previewing the book and Barron's before it was even available, which actually drummed up huge demand for it. We were talking about the power of scarcity, and it really showed there. And it inexplicably to many became a bestseller, not only into Business Week, but also in the New York Times. And I'm like... <laughs> And kind of the rest was history.
1: And you, you, know, you said that you felt like you were on to something big. But really, truthfully, there's, and, and you also said that nobody really believed that. But you've shared with me that you journal. And the benefit of journaling is you can actually go back and really say, well, wait a minute. Was I, was I such a fan of it at the time? And when you go back and look at what you were writing in your journal around that time, once you'd gotten your momentum into it and you're getting ready to go out with it, were you really feeling that way? I
0: was, as a matter of fact, because of the story I'm going to tell you today was in one of the previous journals to when I wrote What Works on Wall Street, Right, and so I, I read the previous one to make sure that my memory hadn't done me a great kindness and upgraded my memory to, or update it, to make it consistent with what I think now. That's a little trick that our brains do that we're not aware of, and it's, by the way, why eyewitness accounts are like the worst thing you can listen to. Because mm. everybody sees differently, and everybody has memories that operate a different way. That's why journaling is so imperative. And yeah, okay. I, I, I read about it, and I was like, this book is going to make me. And so, lucky me.
1: Yeah. And um, I was born in 1965, and so a little bit after you. And there was a, a famous book when I was young by Scott Peck called, what was it? The Road Less Traveled. Oh,
0: yeah, I and read that.
1: And I read that book and it really resonated with me. And I learned a lot from it. And I really, really studied it pretty hard. And then I didn't look at it for 30 years. And I went back and I had kind of forgotten that I had read it so intensely at that time. And when I started reading, I'm like, boy, this really resonates with me. <laughs> you know, this book really, you know, and I, it just made me think like, yeah, it imprint had a big imprint on me and it shaped the way I thought. But there was a point in time 30 years later where I kind of forgot about the fact that, no, in fact, this was the origin of the way that you think.
0: So the idea of journaling all the time,
1: is interesting. Yeah.
0: And just a quick funny story about that. So I, I listen to a variety of mixes. I have very broad musical tastes. Like, if I'm, like today I was working on a thread for Twitter. And so it's Bach, right? The Goldberg Variation, something like that. It's very mathematical and it's really great. It helps you think like when i'm exercising i like rock and roll i like you know and broad broad i love r- parts of rap etc yep. but so one time i'm exercising and i'm listening to what on my spotify says Lale, that's my youngest daughter Lale's 80s mix so i'm listening and working out and i'm like this is an amazing mix i can't believe my 25 year old daughter like pick the absolute best songs from the '80s, and I'm just, I'm, and I came up and I'm talking to my wife and I'm saying, Lail has unbelievable taste in '80s music. And so I texted her and I went, Lail, I just gotta give you a huge compliment. Your '80s mix is awesome. And she, my phone Dad. rings. Dad, she doesn't text me back. My phone rings. Dad, yes, you made that for me. <laughs>
1: And that's the way it goes. Absolutely. <laughs> now, my I wanted to ask you one little sneaky question, and that is, you know, okay, so you write this book, you bring to the world the truth about all these factors, all of these measures, you know, price to book and PE and, you know, ROE and all of that stuff. There's no possible way that you can now apply this and create any kind of Fund management strategy, surely. So tell me, <laughs> tell me what the heck you do and you did then and you do now as far as asset management in relation to what you were bringing out. And I'm, so, I dropped my pen, so I got to just grab one, but go.
0: <laughs> go, yeah. So, So we use and have always used the research that was What Works on Wall Street as a foundation for our quantitative research. It's ongoing. Even the books show that, as you'll find when yep. I send you this fourth edition. Yeah. We learn as we go. You know, you, know, you, you don't know everything all at once. But the, the key reason, in my opinion, why this stuff keeps working, is that these aren't mathematical anomalies. These are behavioral anomalies. By that mm. I mean, I could, I, I could rent, you know, a thirty-minute spot on every major tv channel i could have you know every internet thing plugged in and i could give a lecture about here's what works doesn't matter people will totally ignore you or if they don't totally ignore you if they try to do it the minute it does poorly which i go on at length about in my books right it's you got to understand that it doesn't work all the time and sometimes the drawdowns are really big but the minute that happens, oh, well, that used to work, but that doesn't work anymore. We are very much guided by recency, by what's happening now. Yep. And you know, it's, it's, I think it's hard-coded into our DNA. And, and I think that it, you know, it just never stops working, right? So I always say what we really are doing is arbitraging human nature, right? Mm. Markets change minute by minute, second by second human nature doesn't budge millennia by millennia, right? I mean, society does, right? Right. We have these great things and we have this and we have all of these things, but that's aggregate cultural evolution, right? We as individual peoples, we're not optimized for the environment in which we live. So because our nature changes slowly, if at all, we can continue to arbitrage this. And, and I don't think it's going to go away as long as human beings price securities. People will then say to me, well, what about when computers price securities? I say, I won't be alive when that happens. Yeah. Honestly, I love AI. I love machine learning. We have some research partners at OSAM that we're really lucky to have because you know they're experts in machine learning. They retired at age 40 from Google or Microsoft or whatever. Right. And they're bored <laughs> and they, and they want to play with data and the data is very expensive right so we take them on as a partner we give them access to the data and in return they write really cool papers research projects etc and so one of our machine learning guys you know came to connecticut and gave us a day-long seminar in which he kind of started out by saying okay so anything you hear about machine learning or AI from a marketer is bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <Yep. laughs> and, and I want to tell you that it's much more limited than they say it is, but what it can do is truly amazing. And then we learned about that. Right. right. So I think that it's just in our nature, you know we we have, this, we have this incredible need for an illusion of control, and giving something over to a machine entirely. I just don't see it happening. yeah
1: yep. Yeah. and uh, I have a, a prospect, a, a bank that I've been talking with over the years in Singapore on some stuff, but they've been implementing and trying to do research you know since my specialty is kind of writing research, they've been trying to do research using AI and that type of thing. And basically, the conclusion is, you know, AI can get you 60 or 70% of the the way there. But coming up with the final analysis and conclusion and judgment, you know, you're you're still going to need the value of an analyst or an individual thinking about something. And our ability to think about something, you know, is still valuable at this point.
0: Yeah, of course. You know, it's like, I just finished, uh, I'm writing a thread that's called The Thinker and the Prover. And it's about, you know, uh, it's a simplification of the way our minds work. Mm. But, you know, one of the things is that, you know, we're all walking around and doing stuff with these quantum computers in our noggins. And there's no user's manual, right? If you look at some of the best research on consciousness, on on why anesthesia works, on Mm. a variety of things, you know what you're going to find? We don't know. (laughs) This is coming like from the greatest minds ever. And so I think that you're right in terms of the ability. Humans are going to be still top of the pyramid in terms of the ability to synthesize knowledge. Right. And I think that the best way to look at AI and machine learning is as an incredible research associate. Right. Mm. Who's going to see things. That you just can't see. Who's gonna, who's going to be able to do go through a million things in a minute? And you know, no human, no matter how many humans you had on hand, are ever going to be do that. Because even if they try, they get so bored, and they just, you know, it just wouldn't work. So I think it's very, very helpful. For but
1: occasionally, you're going to find that research assistant. Running into the wall, going, this does not compute. This does not compute. <laughs> and then you just got to take, turn them around. Okay, go sit back down at your desk. We'll re, you know, recalibrate you, and then you're off.
0: <laughs> if you're a if you're if you're a Douglas Adams fan, you will know from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe that the answer to that is forty two. <laughs> absolutely that was a computer that they made and and it calculated the meaning of life for millions and millions and millions of years and its answer was 42
1: <laughs> yeah and um, one of the things uh, that i looked there's a great book i read many years ago called future hype and the guy that wrote it basically said you know the world is moving at such a fast pace and we all understand that and he said um, no it's just the opposite the world is moving much slower than you think and he he would take chapter after chapter, he would take something that you would think would be unassailable, like, you know, we all have photo pictures, you know, on our phones and we can, you know, the the technology related to phone or to to, to, to photography is, you know, miles ahead. And then he's like, yep, and 100% of those pictures on your phone will not even be able to be found five years from now, Mm. you know? And then he said, and here's a picture that's, you know, and I have it in my house, you know, a picture that's 120 years old. That's innovation right. yeah. that happened hundred, yeah. you know, 150 years ago and stood the test of time. And sure. it made me realize, you know, in the case of one part of my business, which is research, I provide research tools and research services to institutions of how can they do, you know, analyst type of research at a lower cost and faster. And what I've found really is that it's about kind of trying to standardize and and focus in and build competency in in each little area, and try to get the best thinkers in your organization doing more time thinking you know because if you analyze, if you if you analyze the analyst, you'll find that they spend they say that they spend about fifty percent of their time in excel models, and Excel models is not where the ideas come from, and so trying to get people to use that brain of theirs that is so powerful is the challenge.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I agree.
1: All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever, ever, ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story.
0: So the circumstances leading up to it were I was lucky to be able to start investing when I was young. So I was in my early 20s when I started. And back then I was doing a lot of mathematical modeling and I alighted on what at the time seemed to be something that was unique. And it had to do, it's it's a little complicated, but I'll just simplify it and say, it had to do with using Black-Scholes option pricing models, implied volatilities for options and comparing those that were asymmetric. And there was a certain like glitch, if you will, that if you, if you sold the one and you bought the other, in other words, you went long the one that was mispriced according mm. to the model and you, and you sold the one, same company, right? So IBM. Yep. And you sold the one that was deemed to be overpriced. It was a pretty good model and a pretty good batting average. It was about 70% accurate. But the whole thing about it was it was singles and doubles. It was not. There were no home runs, right? And I knew, and I knew that going in, right? Because I had done as much back testing as I could back in 1981, and you know, at that time, it took the computer I had a five minutes to compute one implied volatility, so it was it was arduous. But I, I was having a lot of fun, and I was doing it in options, and I was and I was doing well. So I started experimenting with some other models that were more. Basically, looking at the market, not just individual companies, but the market. And was the market fairly priced? Was the market overpriced? Was the market underpriced? And in my youthful ignorance, I thought that, you know, I was going to be able to figure that out no problem. Easy peasy. Um, easy peasy. <laughs> and so for a moment, I had the really bad fortune of having that model work pretty well. And so, This is what's leading up to my worst investment 1987 in august of 1987 i started according to this model which said that the market was very overpriced i started accumulating puts put options and for those who don't know what that is it gives you the right to sell a security at a pre-specified price right so if you have a put option at 100 let's say and the price when when you get to sell it is trading at 70 Mm. you're gonna make a lot a lot of money because options also are using implied leverage right to so you're levering the hell out of your money Mm. and and so i started acquiring these and all the way through september early october i had acquired the biggest put position or call position, the biggest option position that I had ever had in my young life. So I am 20, how old am I? I'm 27 at this time. And going in to the market crash of 1987, the biggest on a percentage basis of any crash we've ever had, I sold them all the day before the crash. (laughs) (laughs) All of them, all of them, every single one of them, I managed to make a very small amount of money because the markets, as you probably will remember, were gyrating all over the place, very unusual for that time period. Mm. So I sold them the day before the market, the great market crash of 1987, which would have made me, I won't give the number, but it would have made me a very, not sizable, but a nice small fortune. Mm. And nope.
1: (laughs) And let me just ask some questions about that. So the first one is that was the was the market giving some signal and it started to come down and then you thought, oh, I'm, I'm making a little profit here. I'm going to take profit on this position or what was happening that caused that to
0: happen? So, so you were kind enough to walk me through the, some of the common mistakes that people make with the worst investments. Yep. And what, what caused that was one of the things on your list, and that was emotion. So I sold them mm-hmm. when the market... Most people don't know this, but the day before the crash was a horrible day Mm. by standards, by standards then. Right. Right. And I was listening. I I had, I subscribed to all sorts of services. I had on, you know, they didn't have financial TV like we have it now, but there was enough on the radio and everything. And I had it all on and I listened, you know, I I paid services to the gurus of the day. And I I had brokers that I talked to as well. Right. And so, like going into the last hour of that day, I'm, I'm listening and, and I'm listening, and these guys, the gurus, are issuing flash reports saying, This is the bottom. And I'm calling these brokers who I really trust. I'm like, What do you think? And they're like, Dude, you, this market is going to soar when it reopens. And like, I'm just capitulated. It was pure, purely an emotional decision. It was mm. like, I, I'm going to get wiped out. And so, you know, you know what happens, right? When you get something in your head like that yep. and you, you you visualize it, all you see is, is chaos and mayhem and despair, you know, because those options cost me a lot of money. And so I envision myself losing all that money.
1: Being wiped out.
0: Being wiped out, literally being wiped out. And I'm like, I can't get wiped out. I just can't. And so... Obviously my lizard brain was in full control. Yep. yep my yep. you know, completely bypassed the prefrontal cortex, completely <laughs> bypassed any of the, the model, right? Because the model is saying, say hey, keep keep those puts, buddy. And so emotion. I was right. overwhelmed with emotion. And and sweating. I mean honestly, yeah, I, sure. I, I I I I was trembling and sweating, and I remember, and it, by the way, we mentioned journaling. I went back and looked at what I wrote at the time. And so you're getting the real story here. Yep. And, you know, when I called the broker to sell, it was kind of like almost a movie scene, right? Because I'm like, I'm like this, right? And I'm saying, <laughs> sell them all. And he goes, man, are you smart? Thank God you're doing this. All right, buddy, I'll get back to you. <laughs> Click. And oh, then, you know. so good. I'll do that. Whoops. <laughs> and knock off my... Uh, <laughs> My, it felt my, so good to sell at that moment. Oh, it felt you... so good. You just felt this amazing release of this weight from your body. Yep. And you just, like, you just think, oh, man, like Churchill said, there's nothing quite like getting shot at and missed. Right? <laughs> That's how I felt, right? That's how I felt.
1: That was it. All right, so tell us, what lessons did you learn from this experience?
0: Okay, so actually... I I have come to see this experience as the best thing that could have ever happened to me. And the the reason for that is I wasn't what I would call a full-blown quant back then, quantitative investor. I used quantitative tools, and most of them were mathematical, still are. But they weren't taking advantage of, of human behavior. They were taking advantage of mathematical anomalies. A couple of things I learned about that. That's great until some academic from nowhere publishes a piece that, guess what, outlines the math of your model. Right. (laughs) And then it instantly stops working, right? So mathematical anomalies are immediately arbitraged away. Behavioral anomalies are not. But the key point here for me and for my life and my career was... This was the turning point in my evolution as a total emotionless, dispassionate quant. I realized that I was not an exception. You know, hmm. we, all think, we all think we're exceptions, right? Yep. Yep. We're not, we're not. And, you know, if you're really smart, you're actually probably more likely to fall for all this stuff. Right. Because you, you create such great narratives, man, that you believe them <laughs> and then you convince other people of them and so on and so on and so on. So I read, I read a lot actually in my journal because I, I could see the evolution right there, right? Mm. It was like over the next couple of months, it's just like, and I started reading a lot of psychological research right? And most people, they didn't call it behavioral finance back then. It was just psychology. But, you know, there's a great book that I still remember by a guy by the name of Robin Dawes called House of Cards, Psychotherapy Built on Myth. And it basically was the first kind of anthology that put together like all the research that had been done on what they call clinical methods. And, And those are me as the doctor saying, well, I think this, and actuarial methods which is Mm. me telling somebody this has the most relevance in determining an outcome here and you've got to weight it this way and then run it through and that's going to tell you what what's wrong Mm. Mm. well what i found when i was doing that research was that we thought that that the actuarial methods were going to be a floor right? Above which we human forecasters or decision makers would soar. Not so. It was a ceiling that we could never touch. And we couldn't touch it, not because we weren't smart. We came up with the actual models after all, mm. right? It was because we were incredibly consistently inconsistent. Mm. <laughs> so we were, we were, our behavior changed if we were hungry. I mean, there's a a thing about parolees, right? If you're getting paroled or going for parole, you better be the first in line because you're going to get paroled probably 98% of the time. If you have the slot right before lunch, you're not getting paroled right? because they're hungry and they want to go eat lunch. And they would much rather just say, denied, 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 let's go and eat, right? And I can give you a million of these examples, but I was finding them. And this is back in 1987, 88, when nobody was talking about this stuff.
1: But come and on, so- Jim. I mean, like, everybody knows this. How can they not? Like, I mean, it's public information. I mean, I love what you talked about, about the behavioral human behavior versus mathematical anomalies. And that helped, yep. that really helped me to think about it. But still, you've got I mean, how can it be for a listener out there? To think that you know you could just apply a model or some sort of structure, and you'd be able to beat the market, match the market. What would you be able to do with that?
0: So it, it depends on what your process is, right? Yep. When I was designing my earliest models, I was a risk. I I, I was like the most risk seeking person on the planet. And I didn't realize, because I was going to manage other people's money, right, mm. well, Shaughnessy Capital Management, which was my first company, that I founded in 1987. Yeah. And I realized that, huh, a lot of people can't handle these drawdowns, <laughs> of, you know, because I was try- I was trying to get a home run every time, right? And great for somebody like me, yep. not so great for 98% of the population who might hire me to be their money manager. My point is, my point is this. There is a lot of public information, of course. There are a lot of smart people. I don't deny that there are yep. artists in the market who who can do it. And God bless them. Yep. I haven't been able uh I haven't been able to find a way to quantify their process mm. and and therefore they're a mystery, which is great because yep. there's more than one path to success. However, the vast majority of successful investors who beat the market over time, not every year. That's a big part of studying base rates, right? Because you got to understand you're you're going to lose, and sometimes significantly against mm. the market. Yep. And you got to have the ability to stay with it and stick with the process, right? Trust the yep. process, right? Yep. And, and so, in fact, there was a study done by IBM of their pension managers in the 1970s, and they were looking for what united them. And it wasn't Style, they were value growth. You know, it wasn't capitalization. They were small all the way up to mega cap. What they found, the report, read, when you could summarize it in three lines: the investment managers who consistently succeeded for IBM's pension had rigorously researched investment processes that they religiously adhered to. Hmm. And you know, so. I started another company, which was kind of the first robo-advisor in 1999 called Netfolio. I was, a, <laughs> I was ahead of the technology. Think um, definitely. But, but anyway, I had the good fortune of meeting and having lunch with John Neff, who you might remember was the yep. legendary manager of the Windsor Fund. Yep. And he was a lovely guy. And so I went down there to have lunch with him. He's very courtly and he's kind of giving me his, you know, he was a value guy yep. and he's kind of giving me, you know, this is what I look for. And as I'm listening to him and he, I'm getting the smile on my face and he's like, finally, he goes, okay, I, I can see that you find something amusing. What are you finding amusing? I said, not amusing. I'm fascinated. And I went, John. And he goes, yeah. And I go, you're a quant. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Exactly. He got this big smile on his face and looked at me and he goes, I'm disciplined.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. That's that's so it's
0: it's it's hard. It's hard to be disciplined. Yeah. You know, look, passive investors have one point of failure, right? And that is they panic when the market's in a bear market and they sell out of their positions. Mm. Right? Yep. Active investors have two points of failure. The first one, similar to passive, but also the relative one. And that is if let's say you're a small cap value manager to pick on the most unloved investment category in the world and- and Right now? Yeah, right now, exactly. (laughs) And you have underperformed your benchmark by 300 basis points. Even if you've made money, you're gonna get fired. Yeah. And so these two points (laughs) of failure get into things like, you know, agency risk, career risk, lots of stuff. Yep, yep. And so I've been lucky for most of my career with the exception of a few years I spent at Bear Stearns, which I loved, you know, it was a great group of people, but I've always had my own company. Mm. Um, so I could, I could just insist upon it. And, you know, even to the point, I mean, somebody asked me in another interview, you know, what are you proudest of? And I said, honestly, I think I'm proudest of the fact that I never emotionally overrode a model. And some people are like, well, that doesn't sound like a very big achievement but, <laughs> until but you do it is, until you do it. Right. <laughs> you, 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 if you read Greek literature, you know about people tying themselves to the mast because the sirens' song are going to tempt them over the board of the ship and they'll drown. Yep. Right. So I had a we had a meeting with an analyst who used to work for Lehman Brothers, who suddenly worked for Barclays and didn't have to change office. And anyway, he came out, and he was a quant analyst for the for the cell side. Mm. And we were chatting about it. And so I just looked at him, I went, how many quants overrode their models? And he went, about 70%. Yep. Yep. And so to me, that's death. You're done. Mm you 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 have negated your entire track record because it is predicated on not doing that yep right got it and so yeah there's a lot of different paths you can take advantage of of human inconsistencies but you got to you got to have ice water in your veins because <laughs> it's hard it's yep. even hard now
1: yep definitely oh well this year's been a real challenge for that so let me summarize a few of the things that I take away from what you've said on your story the first thing is I, I wrote down in my notes, sell half. Because one of the things that I've you know, learned is that basically big mistakes that people often make from my guests is that they jump into something 100%. And they should have probably sized themselves into that position. Yeah. You know, They should have grown into that position because there is definitely a different feeling that you feel. When you, when you own something versus when you're thinking about owning it. Yes. And so, so the first thing, and, and, and that also means when you think that you got to get out, it may be one way of preventing yourself from overreacting to that is say, okay, when my signals say it's time to get out, I'm going to sell X amount, not everything. Now, of course, in this case, because it was more of a flash crash, the reality is that To be successful, you would have had to basically close out those positions pretty quickly if you had held on to them, which brings up a whole nother question of whether you could have done that. (laughs) Exactly. And I doubt it, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, but for the average investor out there, you know, I think that, you know, moving into a position slowly, moving out of it slowly is often one way that you can help kind of mitigate the emotional uh, roller coaster. The second thing that I took away is, you know, I just wrote down to myself, follow the model. And this year has been a challenge for everybody that has a model. And in fact, you know, I have to admit that yesterday my team and I, we went through and, and asked the question, <laughs> how much damage did we do to performance by over by slightly overriding the model this year? You know, we didn't ask how much did we gain? How much damage <laughs> did we do? And that was really a, and it reminds me of one of my guests, episode 165, Meb Faber. And Meb. Oh, I know, Meb's a great guy. Absolutely. And he, he talks about, you know, and it it reminds me too of that, uh, that saying, you know, you can have anything you want in this world. You just can't have everything you want in this world. (laughs) And, you know, Meb, (laughs) Meb goes on like, you know, every strategy is going to fail for a period of years. So how long are you willing to bear that? One year, three years? five years, 10 years. And that's part of the whole concept of a model is that there's no model that will work every year. You can't have it. And so therefore more, the discipline of kind of going through that. And then uh, the last thing is that you, uh, you mentioned something that reminded me of uh, what w- the book I read by Jason Zweig about your money and your brain.
0: And yeah, yeah great to, book. Jason and Jason uh, is a friend and a great guy. a yeah. great guy.
1: And what he made me realize, and I literally wrote it down that that moment when I read that book, is that investing is a physical activity, and that seemed so strange at the before I read that book. But once I read that book and I listened to you say, I started sweating. You know, once you read that book, this is a contact sport.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and you know, he he uses a great metaphor for risk, and that is. We assess people's risk the wrong way. And then he uses the example of what we do is we show them a picture of a snake and say, Are you afraid? They're like, no. And we think, oh, they cannot do risk. He goes, what we should do is throw a live snake in their lap. (laughs) (laughs) Then you're going to come at you. That exactly right. Then you're going to find out how tolerant of risk they're going to be, right? Uh. And so I have always loved that that metaphor from him because it's so true. And you're right, it is. It's physical. It takes over your body. Mm. Cortisol levels spike. I mean, I, I study all this stuff just because I want to know about it. Yep. But it makes profound physical changes in your body, whether you're elated, which is one set of chemicals, and whether you're terrified in suicidal. the fetal position. Exactly. <laughs> I was more suicidal. Yeah. Uh, but you know, then that's a whole different set of chemicals. Yeah. But
1: you're yep. there. Definitely. Geez, I'd love to hear. I wonder if, if Jason had a worst investment ever.
0: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Jason does mostly index investing. So probably not.
1: So he probably did it with his house that he bought at the wrong time or something. Let's see. You're going to have to reach out to him. Anyways, so based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Find a process that works for you. It might not work for me. It might not work for you, Andrew. Yep. But if it works for them, and it doesn't have to be quant. It can be a variety of things, but it's gotta be a process that you kind of discover through your studies that feels right to you, that feels like you can stick with it and then let it work. Beautiful. And it's simple,
1: but it's hard. Yep. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: So it's interesting. I, I think that my number one goal for the next 12 months is to help with a couple of really exciting projects that OSAM has. And one involves kind of what we would call, it's called canvas. And we would, we would describe it as being in an operating system for investment advisors, and it allows for the kind of flexibility and fine tuning as far as taxes, as far Mm. as things that really make a difference. And, you know, if investors hate or love a certain sector, let's say you worked at Google and you wanted to hire somebody and they had the canvas platform, guess what? We can eliminate all Google. We can eliminate nearest neighbors to Google who Mm. quantitatively look like Google and then you know we immunize you as best we can because right. you know most of your wealth is going to be in google stock right through stock options you can do you know esg investing with it you know it's just it's literally you move a lever and it works for you you customize everything so i'm very excited about that and we have been running it for about a year with a handful 10 mm. investment advisors we got some really good some really good advice from some venture capitalists about, you know, no, only do 10 and make them happy. Mm. Uh, So so that, we have a couple other initiatives. And then finally, I wanna start in 2021 on the road to the fifth edition of What Works on Wall Street. And I say edition because it might not be a book. It might actually be, it might live on the web. And the reason we're thinking about doing it that way is, A, we can learn in public. By that, I mean, you know, we'll do continual posts at OSAM and on other sites as well. Hey, guess what we learned? If people have a particular set of skills, which we learned through this OSAM research partner thing, we're going to invite them in. And, you know, then they suddenly get to put on their CV, you know, associate helping on the latest version of what works on Wall Street. Mm. And then... And I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to swing this. I hope so. But then what we'd really like to do is publish all of the relevant data and allow people to use it and manipulate it. Because nobody has, like you said, you you can have anything, not everything. right? And so I'm not going to have every idea. I'm sure there's a ton of smart people out there who have great ideas that I don't have. If we put that data out there, they can experiment with it. So... That's what I'm going to be focused on over the next 12 months.
1: So you're making a playground.
0: Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, life, if, life should be fun.
1: Well, for, for those of you that follow Jim on Twitter, you know, you'll see all the fun that he has. In fact, he goes into moments of, you know, could be days or weeks where he only speaks through memes. <laughs> then occasionally He snaps out of it. All right, listeners, (laughs) there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals to claim your discount on how to start building your wealth, investing in the stock market course. As we conclude, Jim, I wanna thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Uh, yeah, well, I, good investing is simple. It's not easy. Perfect.
1: And that's a wrap Perfect. on Perfect. another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.